You're listening to the Soul Strategies podcast hosted by the team here at Soul Strategies. We hope you like the latest episode and thanks for tuning in. I'm really excited and it is my pleasure to be joined by um, Rich, who is, I love that your name, you go by Richard. Uh, Rich. oh, isn't that amazing? <laughs> yeah, so sorry, we could, you talk about money, uh, Mr. Rich, and you're, you know, a popular speaker on the topics of psychology of money and, and money management and politics and personal transformation, which are all the things that we work with our candidates with in the fundraising department, because many candidates come to us really not having an understanding of um, of even filing deadlines for their campaigns or what the definition of call time is or how you send out a proper fundraising email or mailer um, or even how to develop their own story to make an effective pitch when they're yeah. going face to face yeah. asking people for money. Um, and so without further ado, I, I, I do want to jump into some questions that we have and, and really pick your brain. Um, and and if there's there are things that come up that you want to you know, ask me personally about as well, or and uh, you know, based off my experience. But okay. um, let's jump right on in if that works for you. We're good to go, and I'm looking forward to an incredibly creative conversation. All righty. So um, here at Soul in our fundraising department, one of the very first conversations that we have with all the candidates that come to us. Um, is about the importance of shifting their mindset on money, especially as it relates to fundraising. Um, can you just speak to, well, first define what it, what the money mindset even is, right? Um, and what it means to you and how, um, can you speak more about what a strong money mindset looks like, be it in your personal life, in your business, for your campaign, um, and just why people struggle with money in, in your opinion? Well, uh, I'll start with a story. It's a personal story. And in the uh, early 90s, I had been a trader for a large arbitrage firm. You know, we had quants, we had computers, we had all that. And then I went on my own. And when I went on my own, I didn't have the capital. I didn't have any backing. I was a sole prop. So I was all on my own. And the fear was I can't lose money. So the first year I was very careful. I made 125,000. The next year, a little more aggressive, made 150, then 200,000, then 200,000, then 200,000, which brings us to April of 1995. And I was awoken with a voice. And the voice said, Rich, you're only worth 200,000 a year. I mean, I hear that voice as clear as I hear yours. I woke up, <laughs> looked around the room. <laughs> oh my God, who's there? My wife was still asleep. And so I realized it was a voice in my head. So I got up, I dressed, and I went to the Pacific Exchange where I was a market maker. And I got there so early, the doors were still closed. When they opened, I went to the trading pit. And for those of you not familiar with trading pits, you don't own a spot. Everyone just gets in. The best spots are by the bullies, the people with the most capital, the most aggressive, the meanest. It's really like a jungle in there. Wow. So I, yeah. <laughs> but I what always, they say on TV is true. I mean, you know what you hear about, you know, in like popular media is true. It, it really is. It Earth. is. And, and I stood at the back where I always stood in this empty pit. And that voice said, Rich, you're only worth 200000 a year. And as I said that, I, 
I can still feel that chills up and down my back. And I stepped into the best spot into the pit. Now, the guy who always stands there, the, the uh, market makers kept in the, just before the 6.30 bell, because we're at the West Coast, we started at 6.30. And the guy always stood there, kind of looked at me and waited. And the bell went off and he tapped my shoulder as to say, okay, it's my spot. Okay, <laughs> my spot. And I didn't move. And you should have seen the pit. Everyone just kind of stepped back because they knew what was coming. <laughs> and he started after me. And the and uh, the order book official and the staff said, hey, you, you guys fight $10,000 fine and expulsion. Wow. So, <laughs> so uh, he backed off and the bell went off. And normally I was very careful. I'd buy one or two little trade here and there. I went, and I'm, I'm going to step back from the microphone so I don't blow yours out. Buy 100, sell you 50, buy 20, sold, bam! <laughs> the pit wow. thought that Rich Friesen had gone berserk. But here's what happened. In the middle of the night, I realized I had an internal limitation. And I was done with it. Mm -hmm. So you asked about mindset. My limitation had nothing to do with the opportunities, the values, the, what I could do there. But it was a deep sense of identity mm -hmm. and a belief about myself that I was not worthy. Mm. And, I, and, and in that moment, things shifted for you. It was like a whole personality change just from that voice. I was ready and it was a shift. And some of my clients who have similar issues will do a reframe. And all of a sudden they'll go, wow, that feels so much better. And they're ready and they'll step into an entire new identity, belief and behavioral context. For others of us, and I still have some old programs running and I, it'd be embarrassing, but I can tell you what they are <laughs> that still click in. And for some of us, it's drip, drip, we know just shaving away at our old beliefs and behaviors. And as a therapist, that's where I come in to invite people to continually step into a context that serves them better. Absolutely. And so for people kind of searching for the aha moment, right, or, or the opportunity to, to, to reframe the internal limitations, mm -hmm. what would you offer as the first piece of advice? I know you said you typically tell your clients to take a step back and reframe. Would you say that that is the first step or would you say that um, maybe doing an internal audit on where you are and where you want to go might be the, the next step. Yeah, I, what you're pointing to is, is right. What I do is we say, okay, let's do an, an internal audit. And so I have the golden keys, awareness, acceptance, and then agency. And from a, a, a stand of agency, then I can ask, what do I want as an agent of my life? Mm. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw a little curveball in there because I, I I wanna know I wanna know what you think. So if you could describe money in one word, what would it be and why? Um, and then after that, if you could describe uh, fundraising in one word, one what word. would it be and why? I need three words. <laughs> okay, we can take it. We'll, we can do three. We can do three. Okay. In my book, a private conversation with money. We Which is available on Amazon for people. It, uh, it is available on Amazon, right. You can see it behind me there. 
we use the concept of certificates of appreciation. Okay. About 20 years ago, an economist, Walter Williams, Chicago, I think, black guy, economist, PhD, I heard him being interviewed on the radio and he reframed money for me as a certificate of appreciation. Whoa. So in my book, Joe, the journalist comes to comes fights all the way, but comes to realize that money is a certificate of appreciation. And what that means is I have a leak in my plumbing. The plumber comes, he fixes the leak. I am so grateful that the service he gives me is worth far more than those certificates. So I literally say, here are some certificates of appreciation. Now, modern day, of course, we don't hand over cash, which is a little bit more harder, but we can do the same thing is I can say, I'm happy to give you my certificates of appreciation. On the other hand, if a client comes to me and he pays me and he says, my life has turned around, my relationship with my wife is better, my financial limitations are expanded. I so appreciate what you've done that I can take those certificates of appreciation, put them in the bank. Mm -hmm. Now, are you ready for the radical reframe? Let's hear Press yourself. <laughs> <laughs> the more certificates of appreciation you collect with honest services, the more value you've added to the world. Mm. I like that. Now, there's people who cheat and rob and and you know they 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 give you less services, they lie to you, you know, and and so as a result. Those for me are not certificates of appreciation, but they are bills of indictment. Mm. So I give somebody something that cheated me, I've given him a bill of indictment. It's like a judicial indictment. These bills indict you. But in our world, if we look at my life, what percentage of bills of indictment have I given out versus certificates of appreciation? Oh my God. <laughs> and often they're my own responsibility because of something that I was not paying attention to or didn't do right or just had a dream and I and I didn't follow through or do my research. So certificates of appreciation, the more you collect, and, and, the more and that, good you've done. And I like what you said about, you know, it, uh, certificates of appreciation for honest services yes um because I, I i think that that is why so many of our candidates um have a mindset that does hinder them from fundraising to their full capability because they feel like they have to provide a service right in order to collect money for their campaign when in actuality yeah mm -hmm. uh, you have to raise money for your campaign to push forward a movement that you believe in, to represent a cause, um, to push the issues that you and your campaign care about. But, you know, typically we're used to, like you said, doing a service, an honest service and getting some form of appreciation back sure. in the form of a dollar bill. Campaigning is differently. Do you have any advice that, that you would offer to 
candidates who feel like, well, I mean, I, I can take, you know, $500 from this family that loves and supports me and really believes in what I'm doing, but that's no promise that I'm going to be able to win an election and be the next representative, right. right? That is the end goal. But how could they maybe shift their mindset when they are, you know, in the fundraising forces to, to make it feel like they are offering people value and a service that does deserve um, a certificate of appreciation? Boy, that's such an appropriate question, because just last week, I was at a small gathering uh, for the mayor of San Jose. Okay. And I like this candidate, and he wants to have effective services, have measurement. He comes from the technology industry, so he's kind of a no-nonsense, and he just sees the failures of the bureaucracy and the political process, and he wants to put it on an effective uh, footing where we measure everything, and you have goals, and if you don't meet the goals, then we have to look and see what the problems are. So, you know, that as a common-sense guy, that makes sense to me. So he gave this pitch, he answered questions. A lot of people wanted just to pontificate and he didn't cut them off soon enough, I thought. Mm -hmm. Then he thanked everybody and he started to walk away. And I said, excuse me, how can I contribute to your campaign? Oh, he says, oh, on the website. And I says, how much can I give? What's, is there any limits? And he said, oh, it's like $1,400, but your wife can give $1,400 also. And then he left. And then his the person who put the gathering together came up to me afterwards and said, boy, that was a great question. <laughs> what I was trying to do was, was help him out to say, hey, if you believe in what you're doing. So if I would have been his speechwriter, it would have been something like, here's the problems of San Jose. Here's how much money we're spending ineffectively. We're spending $850,000 per unit to help uh, the uh, homeless people. We're doing this kind of money. We're doing this and that and the other thing. What kind of city do you want? So here's what I am offering to you. Here's a city of San Jose that where you're safe, the streets are clean. We have uh, an effective city council where the issues are being measured. Is this the kind of city that you would like? Well, yeah. Here's how we do it. First, we, we move me from the city council to the mayor where I have a voice and I can make a difference. And then we can engage you in developing that difference. And here's what's going to happen. A, B, C, D. How does that feel, Joe? How does that feel, Sam? How does that feel, Cynthia? Does that feel good? Excellent. So here's the, what we can do. You're limited to $1,400. Was it $1,700? I forget. You're limited to $1,400, but your spouse can do it all. And this is what we're going to produce together. So there's no apology. There's no guilt. There is a clear mission that feels better for them. And we ask for the money and, and maybe even make a commitment. Who here is going to start with you know, how much money we're going to do? But what you point out is so important is that is hard to do. Yesterday, my grandkids ages 10 on down to, to three put in a mango stand on the corner where we live. No issues. Hey, you across the street. Hey, you come here. We have mango <laughs> juice smoothies. <laughs> 
Oh, there's a guy down there. Go get him. They were totally unembarrassed. I mean, I was going, oh, hmm. oh. <laughs> <laughs> so what if we came with that same innocent, that same love, that same, I mean, they made more in tips than they made in selling the Mexico juice because people <laughs> just loved that innocent, that purity. So mm -hmm. what if the politician came with that kind of purity, that kind of innocence, with that kind of heartfelt need and connected to your heartfelt need, describe that wonderful future? Mm. Absolutely. <laughs> wow, thank you. I, I appreciate that. I mean that 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 I, I really appreciate that. Um because typically, you know, I having come, you know, from a background of fundraising, we focus a lot on the metric aspect of it, right? Like the amount of calls we make or the amount of mailers we send out or the amount of emails that don't get kicked back, right? The amount of people that engage with us and not so much on um, you know. The, the the figurehead's mindset and how they view the fundraising activities that they take on. Yes, that is so important. If if as a fundraiser, if I'm the candidate and I have a twinge of guilt, if I, I'm not enthusiastic, absolutely clear about it, it's okay for you to give me money. That comes out and leaks out in all different ways. So just like my entrepreneurial clients, my trading, my investing clients, what we do is we cast a net to find where in their beliefs, their behaviors, their identity, that they have those issues from family, from culture that are, are squeamish around money and aren't clear. Because as long as you have that, those subconscious feelings, it leaks out and other people will smell it. Mm -hmm. Hey, you're listening to the Soul Strategies Podcast. Take a moment to listen to some of our esteemed champions and their takeaways from the program. Uh, it's, it was very important for me to manage uh, time. And the program, again, helped with the discipline of time and helping with the management of time so that, um, so that you can actually structure yourself to do that what you desire uh, uh, for your races. For more information, head over to soulstrategies.com now. The candidates who, who, like you said, have this freedom and willingness to be, um, to kind of take the program and run with it, uh, and, to, and to take the tools and the feedback and the infrastructure that we provide them. Um, and then they, and that they believe that, you know, this is money that should be raised for their cause. I mean, even from the first phone call that we we put them on, because uh, traditionally for, for our candidates, before we even let them start, you know, making call, direct contact during call time, we do like an internal training, right? Um, and I mean, even from training all the way through the very first call, the folks who believe in in their ability to fundraise, perform. I, I would, I mean, I don't have the actual numbers, but I would say at least three to five times better at the end of our kickstart program because sure. they, they're motivated they they are invested in themselves and they don't feel that um political fundraising is inherently i, I mean just like is no matter how you do it it's always bad it's always a bad thing to do right um and so we, we focus on grassroots fundraising not because we think that you know per se having a smaller having earning your campaign earning less money 
um, means that you are, you know, a better on the social metrics, you know, uh, scale. Uh, are you better on the social, you know, if you if you're someone who who like identifies more closely with kind of the socialist structure, and and if you earn less and you win, that makes you a better candidate. Um, and so let's get collect a lot of grassroots uh, funds because that shows the amount of support that we have. But we can't take big money because we don't think that it's okay for a grassroots candidate, or we shouldn't earn a certain amount of money because we don't think that it's okay for a grassroots candidate to compete for radio and TV ads and field work, right? The things that cost a lot of money in the same way that our larger corporate candidates do. Um, and so really a, a lot of it is 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 making sure that they understand that that money is necessary. I mean, if you're gonna participate in politics, you're gonna have to be involved in shifting around money, especially if you are running for a federal position. Um, and I worry that so many good-hearted candidates just feel like if you maintain or you you garner the support of your community members um, at the polls, but also in donations, that you're some you're you're inherently a bad candidate. And so being able to have these conversations with you, which I'm sure a lot of our candidates are listening to, I know are going to help. Um, and and kind of this kind of leads into the the next question that I wanted to pose to you. You um, talk about why money is the canary in the mine shaft. And I wanna give you an opportunity to elaborate on that because I think that that'll help some of our candidates um, come to terms with you know, what it means to raise money in politics and how, um, as, you, as you alluded to, being afraid of fundraising is going to leach into every aspect of your campaign and people, mm -hmm. I mean, and ultimately voter turnout, um, which you know has the, uh, ability impact if you get elected or not. So how does the canary in the mine shaft um, idea, money being the canary in the mine shaft idea, kind of relate to politics and power um, as part of people re reframing their mindset on what it means to earn money? Oh boy, you just open a can of worms through all that. <laughs> I could go on for hours. So how we treat money is a symptom of our relationships. I once was in a discussion with a sex therapist and he said, people, men would sooner share their wives than they would their billfolds. <laughs> <laughs> that is a, that's a strong argument to be made. I know, I, I don't think it's true, but what he was basically saying is that it's it's a very private, it's something that we're afraid of. I mean, I I know some of my best friends and I have no idea how much money I'm, they make or how much money they have. I was surprised one of my best friends made a comment about several million dollars. I went, I had no idea. <laughs> you know, the millionaire next door type. Um, buys used cars, no, no clothes, no, nothing. So we don't talk about money. And it has become socially, especially in our current culture, our divided political culture, it has become a football. So none of us can deal with it honestly or openly because when we open our mouths about money, it then gives an indication of all the other beliefs we have. And as you well know, there's a huge cultural divide 
One of them that the core philosophy is postmodernism. The other is more of a conservative, historically conservative. And then there is a few people that are more libertarian or personal, individually oriented. And money is the canary in the sense that it will tell you where you are in that divide. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a YouTube video on power or equity. And if we look at money as a certificate of appreciation, that means it's a voluntary transaction. Any country, county, school district, or whatever, there is coercion. I mean, you can't no collect taxes without <laughs> coercion. I mean, there's a level that we all say, okay, I'm tribal. In fact, I just wrote a synopsis of how tribal we are. And as tribal people with neurological programming from the tribe, you know, from the savannas of Africa, we all accept a certain amount of tribal structures and taxation and all that in our lives. Because we understand if we don't have that, oh my gosh, you know. You imagine society, right? <laughs> yeah, we, we, things tend to break down and everything has to be negotiated and blah, blah, blah. At some point, when that compulsion becomes so much part of our lives, then it, it becomes the canary. And, and there's risk there. The canary also we can refer to our own personal attitudes about money, our family upbringing. Mm -hmm. My grandparents, farmers in Saskatchewan, Canada, in the Midwest, dust bowl during the depression, lost everything, barely got to the East Coast, St. Catharines, Ontario. My grandpa worked three jobs. My dad reports having just large sandwiches, welfare streetcar jackets they wore to school, the humiliation. And my dad went, and all that programming, I absorbed some of it. Mm -hmm. I just bought a, a used car, but the previous one was 22 years old with 220,000 miles on it. Oh, wow. <laughs> I could afford a new car but I bought another used one. <laughs> it's uh, only three years old. <laughs> yes. But, so, but and so, so I, 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 and I'm sure, I mean, you kept the car for 22 years. Um, you think that that's one aspect of, of kind of the culture and um, kind of learned behaviors that you keep close to you, but you, you operate differently in other parts, right? So you, you know, obviously, as someone who has um, done quite well in their career with money, but do you feel like there is still, even even teaching how pe people to, how to change their money mindset, that you um, can't let go of certain kind of oh yeah from childhood? oh yeah my drive my wife crazy because sometimes I wake up on the conservative side of the bed, keep turning lights off. Do we really need the air conditioner on? <laughs> <laughs> right. right. And other times, whoopee! <laughs> right. Let's like leave the door open, turn the air on, let's leave every light so, on. You're, what you're pointing out is really important, that we have subconscious processes in our brain. So from my grandparents, I got a depression mentality. From my dad, I got, I make a lot of money, but 
my my dad always felt guilty about the money he made. He fact, in fact, he felt so guilty he found ways to lose it, to give it to con artists, to give it away, to make crazy investments, to spend it on crazy things. So when he died, he died broke, mm-hmm. and he had made a lot of money. And I believe it's because that old, that old programming of poverty. He ex- went before. Well, as you know, uh, lottery winners in five years, most of them return to their original net worth. And mm-hmm. everyone knows, you know, football players making millions have a hard time retiring mm-hmm. because we've stepped out of all the programming that we've had. And that's why I'm really passionate about creating a new relationship with money that allows people to step into a new context where money is a certificate of appreciation when you deliver value. In fact, uh, I have what I call a value board in the book. So rather, you know, some people have uh, um, a wish list board. I, I just lost the name of it, but where they put all the things they want. Oh, yes. Like at the beginning of the year, you make like a, um, oh, it's it ends in board and it's not wish Yeah, list. yeah. Like we, my friends were inviting me to do this with them. It's a newer trend, right? Where yes. you like, yeah, crack, right. like a, a vision board. A vision, a vision board. board. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we don't have Alzheimer's yet. <laughs> right. <laughs> there we go. A vision board. Well, my board is a value board. What value am I going to deliver to my family, to my community, to my country? Mm-hmm. What skills do I have? What education do I have? What do I need to improve the value that I deliver? Imagine, Terrell, imagine if everybody in America woke up in the morning and said, I'm going to create a value board. Wow, I just got an emotional rush. It said, how can I deliver value to the people around me, to my community? the gross national product would just explode. The value we deliver to each other would explode. All of our lives, even the people who enjoy surfing every day and not working, their lives would improve because there would be so much productivity and value we deliver to others. So for me, the bottom line of the book is, how do we look at the world and money? And if we look at money as a certificate of appreciation, as a result of value we delivered, then all of a sudden, my $200,000 limit explodes and other people's can explode. Absolutely. Wow. I, I, I really, I, this has been one of the better conversations I've had um, um, about money because typically, you know, these conversations are always framed in such a negative light, right? With, with, especially in, you know, kind of the grassroots political world negative in a negative light but also that it has a limit right or an expiration date yes. or we contribution i mean contribution limits are a real thing right so candidates feel um very limited around what they can do and i, I know that um having the opportunity uh, i'm going to start suggesting to our candidates that they read your book <laughs> the year before they they run for office just to help you know um but yes. also just having conversations around um money not being not being always such a negative topic is such a relief. And I think it'll oh, help with the anxiety for many of the candidates that we work with. Yeah, especially um, because- younger people I work with, 
they are progressive in their politics. And at the same time, they want financial security, invest for the future. And inside, they're just, they're torn apart. They're fighting. They have voices. So what I will do typically with them is have them talk from each of the voices. And then we look at the positive intent of those. And so what we're talking about here, Terrell, is that positive intent underlying all those conflicts. And if we can get down to that foundation, all of a sudden, heartfelt from our hearts, we can connect with others and build a future for ourselves and build a future for our kids and grandkids. Absolutely. Um, I, I do want to ask uh, what your three money rules are. I know you you have three money rules. So I want to ask you um, if you can talk a little bit about those. Sure. Just uh, let me bring that up here so I have it. Okay. No worries. Take your time. All right. So I'll, in fact, I'll read them here. So you asked about three money rules. All money transactions are voluntary and exclude the use of force. All transactions are transparent and honest. Each person determines the value of the transaction for themselves. In other words, I can't say you're going to have this transaction because I think it's good for you. <laughs> right. <laughs> that comes for out of respect. I respect your integrity your values. So as long as you are operating with me in an honest and open way without aggression, I want you to live your life however you want it. And if I do a service for you, it means that you value it from your own terms, that I don't have the moral right to determine what you should value and what you shouldn't value. Absolutely. Now, the challenge is, you know, for government, especially since you're working with politicians, is that government violates all those rules. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> right. You don't get a choice of how much taxes. No, you don't. So how do we handle that? And that's uh, a political discussion as where is that balance? How, how can we minimize those transactions? What how do we take care of each other in our social contract, in our political world and minimize the impact? of violating those rules. Because as you well know, and I did some lobbying in Washington, D.C. for a while, the corruption there is just astounding. Mm -hmm. The difference between the Republicans and the Democrats was the Democrats didn't have a full appreciation of what they were selling and they undercharged for it. The Republicans mm -hmm. were a little more savvy and they a little charged a little more for their laws. <laughs> wow, that's, that's a, that, that I, that is a statement and I really 110% agree with that. Wow. Um, I, you know, we've, we've had a really, I, I, at least for me, and I, I can speak on behalf of the team at Seoul, which we all um, listen to the podcast every time we publish one. So uh, we will definitely review this in the team meeting. And I, I know we'll all uh, agree 110% with um, all of the insight that you provided, um, all the feedback, the way that you um, have shared your experience um, and how you train people on 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 um, bettering their money mindset or have implementing a strong money mindset. Um, can I ask in closing, um, what single piece of advice would you give to a candidate or to an aspiring candidate to boost their confidence in 
um, their fundraising abilities and the ability of them to build a campaign um, that is financially successful? Yeah, so it, that's a tough question because if I had a candidate in front of me, then I could start to talk and I would pay attention to their voice. I'd pay attention to their uh, physiology and I would see certain things that catch and then would focus on that catch or that kind of, or, you know, the, the looking down, the, uh, the uncertainty, the using uh, uh, us a lot, if, or they grimace, they're breathing. And I could see where that deeper issue lies. And then we can go down to what belief creates that hesitation. What, what, or what belief, you know, creates that behavior and then underlying that, what identity supports that belief. And then once we do that and we get clarity, then we're no longer like this. You know, I feel guilty about, you know, right. or, or like my kids in the mango. <laughs> uh, <laughs> hey, guy over there, come here. <laughs> so once we have rapport with our deepest values, our identity and our beliefs, then when I come to you, and I look you in the eyes, you know, you know that I don't have any internal conflicts. I'm coming to you as a human being with my heart open. And you and I both want the same thing, a better world for ourselves, our children, and our grandchildren. Okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, when are you running for off? When are you running for in 2024? You, I mean, you have everything down. <laughs> oh, I'm 75. <laughs> I'm enjoying. You know, we each have to contribute in our own ways. And for me right now, my best contribution is as a therapist and a writer. Oh, absolutely. And that, that is, I, I mean, I'm not trying to say that, that is any less impactful because here I am reaching out for your advice and uh, sharing it with the metaverse. Um, so thank you so much again for your time today. Um, I look forward to continuing conversations. I'm going to personally get your book um, as well, because I, I don't think anybody is above um, bettering their relationship with money or, or at least finding out more. And I'm sure there are many people who will listen. Yeah. And, and please set up a time to talk, read the book. There are things that there that are going to wrench your neck. You're going to go, what? <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'd love to have a conversation and continue it. I really enjoyed the questions. I enjoyed our conversation. I really felt like a heartfelt connection. So I would love to continue it in a way that makes sense. Absolutely. Thank you very much for your time and um, stay safe. Oh, man, this was a ton of fun. Thank you. Yes. Hopefully we can do a part two or a follow-up in the, in the, in the future. I'd love to. All righty. Take care and talk Bye -bye. soon. I really appreciate you.